This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to a bonus episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And are you ready for some bonus, some extra? It's I Saw What You Did unfiltered. Can you imagine if we were filtered on the pod, (laughs) on the main feed? (laughs) I know. I I don't know if I told you this, but um, someone that's friends with my mom or somebody like on Facebook heard like one of the audiograms and was like, all oh, the cussing. Like, <laughs> oh my God. And I'm like, ah, ah. whatever. Like, I don't know. Like, at, <laughs> at this point, I'm like, that. that is the least of my fucking concerns, really. Exactly. Well said. <laughs> well said. Make that an audiogram. Send it to her directly. <laughs> I know. I was like, when you're out here just defending everybody, saying a couple F-bombs is nothing. Nothing situation. Who are you offending? No, I'm kidding. I hope or not. I mean, I don't know. I'm. I don't know. Who knows? Just a wide blanket of of just in case. Yes. The just in case blanket. We're just gonna assume. Exactly. That's gonna carry us over for the next sixty years or however long we're doing this podcast. What's going on with you? You all right today? Not much is going on. I'm excited um, to dig into this new bonus ep format. Ooh, why don't you explain what we're attempting for this episode? Well, we have a lot of movies in our in our pocket that we place into themes and want to talk about. Um, our list is immense. Uh, sometimes, though, there's just one movie where we just want to talk about nothing but that and go deep. And it's <laughs> passionate and just... Just go for it. So that's what we're doing today. Yes. Um, we're going to do this again. Um, we're going to take turns doing them. This is all just like fun. It's a bonus. We're, we're, we're going to be a lot looser, as you know. So um, I'm probably going to miss a lot of things. Like if you want the production history of this film, you may just want to <laughs> Google it or whatever. Um, and you should. Yes. And, and on top of that, too, um, there, this movie does have some um, sexual violence in it. So if you uh, don't want to listen to that, this, that's fine, too. Um, but you will be talking about it a little bit. But the movie itself um, has some pretty intense rape and sexual assault scenes. So just want to give that. But, yeah, I, I'm excited because I, I when we were thinking like, oh, Let's try this. Let's do like an entire episode about one movie. This was like the first one that came to mind because I know this is something that you and I had talked about before. And I think, you know, it was just finally that moment where I was like, all right, fine. I'll go in there and I'll just lay it all out. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I I appreciate it because you you've had some moments with this movie, but particularly over the past year, I feel like 
It featured heavily in your Insta stories for a while. There were lots of, uh, just lots of, of images and commentary. Not in a way that was worrisome, just interesting. Like you're really, you're going through it with this movie again. <laughs> well, and I'll tell you why. First of all, let me just say what the movie is so we don't um, further this charade. <laughs> so for this episode, I really need to talk about The Prince of Tides. Yes, you do. From 1991, directed by Barbara Streisand. Hello. I'm Dr. Lowenstein. What do you want from me? I, I need you to be her memory, no sense, and fill in the missing details. <laughs> I spent my life trying to forget those missing details. <laughs> why would she do that? What are you all hiding? This is not about me. Then why are you so upset? Because I don't like being lied to. I don't like secrets. <laughs> I think we all know this movie by now, hopefully. If you don't, then you should know the book. But either way, it seems fairly familiar to people, I would say, right? And if not, you're in for a ride. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm going to say just right off the bat, okay? And this will probably answer your question that you, or the statement that you just made about me going through it with this movie this year. So first of all, I think a lot of people would assume that I would hate a movie like this. Okay. I think because, that's fair. Yeah. 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 Cause I've obviously, uh, I've gone on record as having not seen Titanic or Romeo and Juliet. And, you know, I, I guess maybe people thought I would just be adverse to romance movies. I think a lot of people think that, um, if they know me from TCM, because I program like cult movies and stuff, they'd be like, oh, there's no way this chick loves like a middle aged romance from the early 90s well little do they know guess what motherfuckers you you contain multitudes yes and the thing that i really feel too is that there's a lot of people that hate this movie and yes and i've come across people who hate it um i'm not gonna say that they're all straight cis men but (laughs) but they are and honestly, that shit just fuels my pash. Okay. I love this movie more because you hate it so much. Let's just say that. And what ended up happening is that early, I think it was early on in the pandemic. Maybe the pandemic hadn't happened yet. Maybe it was about to, but it was sometime last year. Prince of Tides finally came onto the Criterion Collection. They did a mm. Blu ray of it. And wouldn't you know, you had all these dudes coming to the table complaining about this dumb, over-the-top romance, this chick flick coming to Criterion Collection, right? A lot of people were like, why this piece of shit? And all I had to say about that is that you can kindly huff my Southern farts because I was fucking stoked. (laughs) In fact... Just to give you a little uh, insider info, I have a friend that works at Criterion or works at Janus, but also, you know, Janus and Criterion are pretty much the same company. Janus Films is the distributor and Criterion is like the home video. He was the one that told me a long time ago, by the way, did you know that Barbra Streisand recorded a commentary track at Criterion Collection for Prince of Tides and it might be coming out soon? And when I heard (gasps) that information, I was literally like... 
a, like a switchboard operator. Like basically like, <laughs> yeah, I got to tell all my friends that this is coming on the Blu-ray and DVD. I was that excited about it. And so when it, when it came, when it came onto Criterion, I was like, oh my God, like finally this shit is in a, a incredible restoration. It's going to be a part of my physical media library. It's going to have all these extras, all this extra shit. I'm so stoked. I I do I do love that. I do love that. And I I don't understand the the animosity for this being in the Criterion collection. I think that it is it's a work of art in many ways that we will get into as we talk about this. But do you want to give a synopsis? Do you want to just jump in? This is a new format for us, so whatever you prefer. Sure. I'll give a little bit of a synopsis and then we can go into the beats if that makes sense. Yeah. So essentially this movie well, I need to preface this by saying it's based on a book called The Prince of Tides that was written by Pat Conroy. More about him later. I have a lot to say about Pat Conroy. <laughs> but the plot to the film is that there is a man named Tom Wingo. He lives in Beaufort, South Carolina. I used to live in South Carolina. More about that later. He um, is a husband and a father of three. And um, essentially has to go to New York to uh, attend to his uh, twin sister, Savannah, who is um, suffering from like a mental health crisis. And she was kind of um, just unresponsive. And he needed to go up there and sort of um, just look after her and, um, you know, basically be with her. And she was at the time... Before, when she went into the hospital, she, her, she was seeing a therapist, a psychiatrist named uh, Lowenstein. I think that uh, her name is Susan, but everyone calls her Lowenstein by her last name. And essentially, um, Tom and Lowenstein start having a, a, an affair, essentially. He's also kind of going through his own family history and a lot of... Uh, trauma that his sister and him and his brother have experienced. So it's kind of like he's going up there to help his sister. He's also kind of unpacking all of his trauma from childhood. And he's sort of falling in love with Lowenstein. And at the same time, like his wife in South Carolina is having an affair as well. And, you know, they're basically on the verge of divorce. So he's kind of, they're both kind of, everybody's spouses are cheating on each other, basically. And so it kind of <laughs> pulls Tom and Lowenstein together. And then he kind of, you know, um, eventually sort of comes into the full scope of therapy. And, you know, it's just really kind of having a reckoning with everything. And then that's the story. Which is interesting from the get, because I, I've been in therapy for a long time. Yes. Never once has, I mean, I've never had such a dire mental health crisis. Um, but to have a therapist say, hey, in order for me to help your sister, I have to talk to you. That's kind of an interesting premise. Yeah, I, I gotta be honest. There feels like there's maybe some kind of like HIPAA stuff that shouldn't be <laughs> happening. Like... I, I I don't know. I mean, I, I was sort of unclear about that where I was like, can a therapist approach, you know, a family member and say, can I just ask you a shit ton of questions about my patient? I don't know. Yeah, well, especially because like at the point that she asks, she doesn't know if he's the source of her trauma or not. Like he could be a bad news kind of family member 
Yes. It's just, it's, it's a risk. It's a risky move, but it makes for a great story. Of course. I mean, the story wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the flagrant abuse of HIPAA laws, but you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but I want to like back out of the plot a little bit and just tell you kind of like my history with this film, because the reason why I'm so passionate about it. So first of all, this movie came out in 1991. As we know, this is like a golden age for you and I in terms of <laughs> middle school, passion, romance. We were like in our Memphis Bell gleaming the cube era. Uh, we were impressionable young women who were fascinated with, you know, sort of like romance and and people to be in love with and that kind of stuff. And, and the adult world, like just yes. fascinated by the adult world. Absolutely. A hundred percent, which is for me. A movie like this was very adult. Yeah. It was basically what I assumed adult life would be like. Right. On top of that, Barbara Streisand to me at this age was also very adult, very much like somebody for my parents. Mm -hmm. Um I, you know, basically I had never really heard her music. I just sort of knew her in the culture and she seemed like this like grand dame, just sort of this like legendary adult artist, like four yeah. adults. I would no one, no one I knew ever fucked with Barbara Streisand. Let's just say that in sixth grade. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this, so this movie, I never saw this movie as a, as a kid because I just thought, oh, it's like watching something that like 55 year old people would watch. It wasn't on my radar. <laughs> But I was intrigued by all things adult world. So I just thought, OK, well, maybe I'll watch it one day and, you know, I will finally grow up. Once I've seen Prince of Tides, I will finally be an adult. Right. That's the mark. <laughs> yeah. It's like a rite of passage. And so it wasn't until I was older when I when I first saw this film. And honestly, it's because. You know, I work at TCM. I, I have subsequently seen a lot of Barbra Streisand movies and I have enjoyed them. And I sort of became like fascinated with Barbra Streisand um, because of exactly what I thought of her when I was a kid, which is that she seemed like such a grown up and so like glamorous, but like the type of glamour that doesn't exist today or something it's just like if you think somebody's glamorous it's like they're at the met gala or something like that this type of glamour seems very old school to me kind of like a liberace type of glamour like i just thought oh what a songstress in this like golden age of you know the great american songbook type stuff like th for theater people maybe but not for somebody like me but honestly, it was it wasn't until like I started coming becoming familiar with her movies, like when I saw The Way We Were for the first time that I was like, oh, OK, now I'm starting to understand what she is about. <laughs> okay. And I think that par part of what my fascination with her ended up becoming was that much in like The Way We Were and, and a lot of her films, because she's only she's directed three films. Okay, even though she's been in a shit ton, she's really directed three. And it was Yentl, this movie, and The Mirror Has Two Faces, which <laughs> that's a whole that's a whole other episode, baby. That's yeah, a whole we, other episode. That's a whole other episode. Yeah. But she encapsulates in film what I think that I sort of identify with, whereas her character, 
is usually a kind of like non-conventional beauty who wins at the end. Yeah. Okay. Because that's kind of her role in the way we were. A star is born. Mm-hmm. Mirror has two faces. Absolutely. Like that. that's kind of a running theme in her films um, is that she's like the non-conventional beauty like our awesome quirky jewish new york girl who like wins at the end and you know that kind of thing resonates with me obviously so that's cool i saw the mirror has two faces once but i've never seen yantle because it was kind of famously panned right like people made fun of it when i was growing up and I was like, well, I don't want to see a movie that's just jokes. But that was when I was a kid. I think I would, I would watch it now. I, I think that there is a quality to her. And, you know, as much as I hate, um, I just previously said that I will um, let guys that complain about her huff my southern farts. I know I just <laughs> said that. But there was a moment where I'm like, OK, I get it. Right. Because people see her as this very like dramatic over the top like you know she's a real like kind of um she's real high key or something like that yeah and there's a lot of people that don't identify with that don't like that kind of stuff they think oh my god like you know she's i don't know like in the same way that people don't get liberace which again i don't want to talk to you if you don't get liberace but there are people out there who don't get the pageantry or the pomp and circumstance of um you know, sometimes performers have. They have that sort yeah. of extraness to them. Also, I'm realizing that I was thinking of Ishtar, so Yentl may not have been panned. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people made fun of Yentl too. So it's okay, it's cool. you're not you're not too <laughs> far off the mark. Um but it's funny because for a lot of people say, Oh my god, I'm so tired of the whole Barbara Streisand is an underdog in every movie thing, but she's actually an underdog too. I feel right. um, and I feel like she has a very passionate fan base and there are people that love 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 her and people that hate 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 her and I was again pretty ambivalent about her for a long time in my childhood and it wasn't until I was an adult that I was like oh yeah okay now yeah. I get it I like her because she's an underdog but I also like the pomp and circumstance <laughs> I love her being a little extra that's just my <laughs> shit that's great I like it. I'm I'm down. I'm down. Yeah. But the other part of this movie in particular that I love is that it is a book that was written by Pat Conroy, who is um, a very famous Southern writer. And uh, he's since passed, but he was, you know, writing kind of those. Um, I know people kind of put him in the Southern Gothic tradition, even though I think it's I don't know if I would necessarily do that. I would sort of, he's kind of adjacent, but not full. He's no like Flannery O'Connor really for me, but you know, Pat Conroy was born in Atlanta and he was raised in South Carolina. And the funny thing about that is that I actually used to live in South Carolina too. And I'm also from Atlanta. So I have this very similar um, trajectory that he had because um, additionally, his father was in the military and so he was a military brat and I was a military brat too. And in fact, Pat Conroy basically like he kind of championed military bratism. I don't know if that's like yeah. a way to say it, but basically he was like military brats share a kind of common cultural history. 
That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I've never really heard anybody talk about it the way he has. And so I was like, wow, that's really interesting because, yeah, I think there is so much about me that comes from the fact that my dad was in the military his whole life. And, you know, of course, there's the moving around and sort of the like getting on military bases and that sort of culture. But it influenced a lot of his work. So basically, like the great Santini and, you know, just other stuff like there a lot of them were a lot of his work was about his dad, um, who was, by all accounts, kind of a very hardcore, strict military guy. Right. And so you have it. You have stuff like the great Santini, which is directly connected to that idea. But then there's stuff like the Prince of Tides, which I think there is the dad character in this movie that seems kind of, you know, autobiographical a little bit. Yeah. And so much of what I think the book, but also the movie is really good about is talking about the South and showing this like really beautiful um naturalness to the south i think that's what the movie does especially well it really every time i watch it it really makes me miss um south carolina when did you live there i lived there so i um i lived there from let's see i moved for, in kindergarten from chicago so like speaking of military bratism i was actually born in san diego and I left San Diego pretty quickly. We lived in Chicago for like a couple of years. And then when I was in kindergarten, I moved to um, this town called Goose Creek, South Carolina, which is about 30 minutes north of Charleston and lived there until I was probably in fifth or sixth grade. Oh, yeah. So a lot of my elementary school years were spent, you know, north Charleston in a very rural area because at the time Goose Creek I didn't know any different because obviously I was a child. A kid. <laughs> yeah. But I went back many, many years later and it's, it's pretty rural. It's a pretty like, you know, not to say Charleston is this huge city. So going outside of it for like 30 minutes, I mean, you're pretty much in the country. Yeah. And, but my summers, every summer we spent like Kiwa Island, you know, Charleston, Mount Pleasant. We, my, my family went crabbing in Mount Pleasant. Like we were very much a part of the, like, we loved like the low country food and everything. And so it was like a big part of my childhood is, is living, living in that area. That's so cool. I never knew that. Yeah. But, um, you know, part of what I love about Pat Conroy is that that's kind of like where everything is centered for him too. And like, I don't know if anybody's seen this movie. There's this movie called Conrack that um, stars John Voight. Uh, I know we just talked about him recently. And um, he basically, basically John Voight plays Pat Conroy when Pat Conroy was teaching on this like island off the coast of South Carolina that had like all these like Gullah residents. Yeah. And it was like a 70s movie. John, um, John Voight has the craziest hair uh, it's very it's very blonde and very like um i don't know just kind of he looks like a an old runner like a 70s jogger like he's got this like feathery look to it that and, is something that is a constant i think with pat conroy because that is what nick nolte looks like in this movie and he's a teacher yeah and and you gotta say you gotta wonder because pat conroy i think was blonde right yeah and so i was like oh, okay like there's a lot of you know he's putting himself in there it's like <laughs> oh there's like tall blonde guys got it must be him 
but also too, I think that's another thing that is interesting about Barbara Streisand is that a lot of her films have blonde guys too. Yeah. Like weathered blonde guys. Yeah. Um, because it's not just Nick Nolte. I mean, it's like Robert Redford in the way we were Jeff Bridges in the mirror has two faces. I was like, Barbara's hooking up with some choice blondes. I gotta say good for her. Anyway, I would recommend Conrack. Um, if you can track it down, I don't know if it's readily available or not, but um, it's a really interesting movie, and John Voight is great in it. Um, and I'll I, watch it. Yeah, gotta check it out. But um, anyway, back to the Prince of Tides, <laughs> won't you? <laughs> Jump in. Look, this is this is your your passion project today. Okay, I have a lot to say. The only thing I will say before. Is that in terms of what I thought this movie was and in terms of what it actually was, absolutely hit the mark. Like I was like, oh, I'm 11 years old and I'm like, this movie is for adults. And it's like this big sweeping epic romance of like the early 90s. And that shit is absolutely true. (laughs) It really is. I mean, there's no way around it. It really is a romance in a, a very... I won't say wild, but it's a romance in a way that I'd never seen before as a kid. Because I did watch this as a kid. I watched it on VHS. My grandma wanted to see it, um, which is how I watch most of my movies. Yeah. And I was mildly traumatized by one particular scene. <laughs> and But I thought like the rest of the movie when I watched it this time, because I hadn't seen it in years, I had forgotten a lot of the stuff around the romantic story because of the powerfulness of the other stuff that's being revealed in the family history. So I I locked onto that as a kid. And as an adult, I locked onto kind of the the romance side of it. Absolutely. And I there are there are like two components of it, like you said, because there is this very traumatic hardcore history to this family, this Wingo family. Tom Wingo and his twin sister and the older brother, um, you know, they have this mother who's this kind of beautiful cold maybe in a lot of lot of ways she's definitely Mm -hmm. like married to the worst dude ever he is a total piece of shit and she is kind of bound to him and she's just kind of always looking for a way out and she wants to be like upwardly mobile so she's like i want to get out of this flop house and i want to like you know move on to the big time whatever that is like marrying a rich politician or something like that and there is a very, very hardcore scene that happens in the movie where, again, I've I've just going to give you a little warning that this is what I'm about to talk about it. But, um, you know, essentially one night the dad's gone and the mother and the three kids are at home and three escaped prisoners break into their house and essentially they rape the mother and the twins, including Tom. and. It's traumatic, like it, yeah. like you know, it's it's just traumatic, and it's very jarring in the film because the way that Tom is talking about it is that he's talking about it in flashback as he's discussing it with Lowenstein, right? So it's kind of that thing where it's the big family secret where no one's ever talked about it. They're not supposed to talk about it because Luke, their older son, comes in while it's happening. And basically kills 
the inmates. Basically, he kills two of them, and then the mother stabs the last one in the back. And they bury the bodies. They don't tell the police. They don't tell anybody that it happened. In fact, the dad comes home hours later, and they're like having a fucking family dinner where no one is saying anything. That literally just happened. They had just finished washing blood off the walls. Yes. And then they're having dinner. Right. And it's that kind of thing where, you know, they're not supposed to talk about it because as, as far as their mother has told them, it never happened. Right. Right. And so this is all obviously like bottled up trauma that his entire family has experienced. And, you know, when he's talking about it, it's, it's after many interactions with Lowenstein. And you can tell that there's something dangling that hasn't been, you know, reached for you. And then finally, when he talks about it, it's like his big catharsis. And it obviously drives him and Lowenstein closer um because she's here for him and wants to you know help him process the feelings behind it but it's that thing where like his 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 coping mechanism for his life is to be funny and i i think that that's a common thing for people like i think that people who have experienced a lot of pain and a lot of trauma have a lot of times used humor to like diffuse it and any any claims it's the southern way Right. Which I can I can understand that because that is, I think that is something that I did see um, as part of, I think, a Southern. I don't know if it's a Southern tradition, but it is sort of in the ether of of yeah. being Southern is that you sort of are very polite and you don't really like air out your dirty laundry for people. And it's so much easier to make a joke about something than to like really tackle it, you know. Yeah. It's also, I mean, at that look, I've had a couple of therapists tell me, like, oh, you, you use humor to deflect a lot. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> like, it really <laughs> throws me off every time because I'm, I'm glad that I have a sense of humor, but I do also realize what they say, which is what they're saying, which is like, you know, you're talking about something intense right now. You should not be throwing in a joke. Like, sit with the feeling. And, and this is, I think, in the movie, what we're seeing is... With Lowenstein, even though he's not officially in therapy, this is the first time that he's feeling his feelings. The craziest part is that 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 moment where after he kind of reveals the entire story and he does that whole and that's what I like about the South, like that whole moment. It's like that to me is absolutely what he's been doing his whole life is he's basically been like. I'm just all I'm doing is putting on a show to mask everything else. You know? And you can you can tell from the beginning of the movie what I really liked about the pace of the movie and the way it's set up is that you really get to see kind of the gentleness and the beauty of this island they grew up on. And their dad was a shrimper and, you know, their mom was, you know, kind of fun and kind of hung out with them. And they had their own little world as kids. And then when you see him as an adult, he has such a frenetic energy where he's just constantly making jokes like his wife is trying to talk to him about serious shit and he's just making jokes and like, you know, laughing with the kids. And it is like, oh, oh, yeah, I can see how this energy that he's bringing in the movie in the beginning was really compelling. And I think like Nick Nolte is incredible in this movie. Yeah. Um. And the thing that is really interesting 
about him as an actor is that, of course, now everybody sort of like he's like this kind of running joke for people as the guy that had the crazy mugshot and was, you know, basically like pulled over for a DUI and then had that like crazy hair and his in his picture. And I think people kind of say, oh, he's just kind of this like wild dude, you know, um, classic like wild guy actor. But it wasn't until I saw this movie that I was like, oh, man, he's actually incredible. Like, he's an yeah. incredible actor. And he, his his character, you're right. He's like mercurial. He's very passionate. He has like a very, you know, quick temper. But also he's very charming mm -hmm. because he's had to be. He's had to present this like, you know, funny, like uh, entertaining guy. But then when he gets pushed, even like a little bit about something, he completely flips the fuck out. Yeah. Um, but then also his southerness is involved, too, where he is gentlemanly and he says, ma'am, and he's, you know, so he's got like all of these like different like energies kind of at the same time. And that's compelling, I think, as as a viewer, like I'm like, oh, my God, he's kind of like this very I can't take my eyes off of him. On top of that, he's got to me kind of that like southern guy look, classic southern <laughs> guy look. He will wear suspenders to a party. Yeah, he's wearing a seersucker suit at one point. I was like, yes, yes, sir. Um, doing a lot of like, sh um, I, I guess they're kind of like a J. Crewy type of plaid shirt tucked into like, you know, chinos, like <laughs> plain front chinos. And I'd also wearing a lot of like, um, like sweat shirt old school sweatshirts yeah. which i love but the other thing about him in this is that he is smoking cigarettes oh constantly non-stop he's a football coach and he <laughs> smokes cigarettes non-stop all over the place everywhere okay but did it make you think nobody smokes in movies anymore oh completely i was like it's so jarring to see because you never see it anymore yeah. Okay. Imagine Jason Bateman. Cause I'm like, okay, he's basically like uh, Jason Bateman wears the same clothes that Tom right. Wingo wears. So if you're watching a Jason <laughs> Bateman movie, imagine Jason Bateman with his rolled up sleeves on his J. Crew shirt, smoking cigarettes everywhere. You'd never see that. It was no, just lighting them anymore. up one after the other. It's so fucking funny. I didn't, when this movie came out, I didn't think it was going to ever be a period piece. But the fact that he smokes so much makes it a period piece to me because I'm like, you just like this is so clearly the 90s because this doesn't exist. Like you, he's he smokes in bars. He smokes in restaurants. He smokes in stores. He smokes in offices everywhere. Yeah, there's two things for me that I have um, said are like the dead giveaways to an older movie. One is luggage that doesn't have wheels. Yep. So anytime somebody is hand carrying luggage, there's not a roll aboard. It's like old school luggage and cigarettes. <laughs> and this movie's got both. <laughs> it's got it all, baby. It's an old, old movie. But I <laughs> honestly, to me, like for all the moments where he's like flipping the fuck out, he there are moments where he's incredibly charming to where I'm like, do I have a crush on Nick Nolte from The Prince of Tides? <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, Isn't he like 50 years old in this movie? Oh, 
my God. I think he's 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 80 now. Like I looked him up. Okay. He's 80 years old now. So he was definitely middle-aged when he made this movie. Well, and and funny you say that because, you know, as we've gone on record, we love a middle-aged guy. We love a cholesterol pill. We love a gray yes. hair. Um, so he is within our age range for sure. But also just like having never really felt anything for Nick Nolte, like ever. Yeah. Um, now I'm like, and I don't know if it's because I'm just seeing him in this comfortable character, like seeing him as like a guy that, you know, like maybe one of my elementary school teachers or somebody that I sort of knew from that era, from this part of the world that I'm very closely identified with. Like, I'm yeah. like, I think I might have a crush on middle-aged Nick Nolte in, in The Prince of Tides. Dudes, I don't know. To be fair, all I knew of Nick Nolte before this was like 48 hours, like the 48 hour series. Definitely. And he was just kind of like the funny sidekick cop, which is not an attractive look to me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I just, I don't know, it really throws me for a loop. But I will say this. I've heard this rumor and I was like literally on the Internet before we got on the camera frantically searching this. I can't really find any super hard evidence, but I have found a few articles that suggested that said that Barbara Streisand when she made The Prince of Tides, she fell in love with the character of Tom Wingo and like had a <gasps> full on crush on Nick Nolte as his character in this movie. What? How do you even separate that? What is those are some incredible psychological leaps that are happening there. <laughs> wow. I know. And at this point, I'm like, bitch, I get that shit. Like, yeah, he's a he's a fine Southern gentleman. He's a little, you know giving you a little wink he's a little sweetheart he's a little tender he's like a broken little bird coming to your office come on what's not to and love she's she's 100 like high-powered new york city psychiatrist like yes. he is not of her world so it makes total sense in that opposites attract kind of way absolutely that's a big part of this movie because basically they're coming from two different places right and like she is like totally new york like she is wearing the power skirts with the matching pantyhose i i don't even know i could probably go two hours or more just on her fucking fingernails those okay a six inch french manicure is all i want to talk about <laughs> barbara streisand is all about her nails there have been interviews with her she's talked about them basically she's like these aren't falsies bitch these are real um because she's always had incredible nails like even in the way we were she had those like red fingernails yeah and um i so she's very very vain about her fingernails for good reason because they're incredible because <laughs> she knows they're the shit well, and this is the other part of this component. I mean, there's so many like working parts of my my love for this film, my <laughs> obsession with this film. And, and it's because she is this type of woman that I just did not have access to. Like she's this power psychiatrist, New York. She's wearing the like, there's a lot of like in this movie, there's a lot of um tans and browns yeah. and mauves it's very like muted her world is very like muted classy new york 
doctor looks. You know what I mean? Very beige. Very beige. Very of the moment. Yes. Very like cashmere sweater hanging off a shoulder. Tan. Tan or or like a, a, a light brown. And let's not forget, she's got the an incredible array of skirt suits. Yes. Very brown. <laughs> very beige. But skirt suits. She's got those legs, like the legs, meaning the egg, the brand legs, the egg from the from the drugstore that has the pantyhose in like an off black. There was an off black. There's a taupe, you know, a suntan. You can see a suntan pantyhose once in a while. I mean, this shit was unheard of for me when I was like 11 years old. I was like, who the fuck? Like only older women who are fancy wear pantyhose. This is insane. I love pantyhose as a mark of adult <laughs> success. And let me just tell you something. There's a scene, there's a whole sequence in this movie that literally makes me scream. I scream with delight and a little bit of horror, not gonna lie. When they go to that fucking lake house. <laughs> I knew it. The lake house sequence is unbelievable it is so like again mark of a professional adult new yorker i've got a house upstate it's secluded it's on a lake we're gonna we can sit out and look at the stars there is a scene where because at this point they're in full thrall like they're in their affair in a very big way he's had his catharsis and now they're just in love and there's two two scenes about this lake house that just kill me. One, when she says, can you just take me in the house so we can make love all night? And he says, I've got a lot of stuff to teach you about the outdoors. <laughs> lose it every time. Lose it in several ways. Screaming, weeping, like just it, it runs the gamut. But it makes me react every time I see it. And then there's also a scene where there's a fire going inside. He's sitting in a rocking chair and she's curled up on his lap like a fucking kitten. This is a full size woman. This is a full size adult woman. And she's just curled up on him and he's rocking in the rocking chair. And I'm like, do it. Is this is this sexy? Like, What is happening right now? There's a lot of emotions. I don't know. It is one of the most deeply weird moments I've ever seen on film. <laughs> Because I'm basically like, the fuck are you doing on like a Cracker Barrel-esque rocking chair on this man's lap? Like, is that like, what the fuck? And she's curled up in this like big sweater with these socks on. And I'm like, this is fucked up. Like, this it's looks weird. And it's, I get what they're trying to tell to telegraph here. I get I get what they're saying is like he's taking care of her, he's caring for her, and she's usually the person that cares for everyone else or other people. But I don't. I, it's just weird looking, and it's weird feeling. And she directed that shit. She's like, "Here's what's up. I'm gonna jump in his lap like a fucking golden retriever." And y'all going to just deal with it. And I can imagine everyone on that set was like, I'm sorry, what? Ma'am. Let me just tell you something about Barbara Streisand, okay? This is a woman who knows how to make herself look good as fuck on a movie. Yep. She, when she comes on the screen, it's like a fucking 
angelic light from heaven is being cast on her. Okay. <laughs> Where she looks like golden. She's golden. Yes. Right? Because why the fuck not? She's making this fucking movie. She wants to look good. Put her in some golden ass light. Make the other person look like complete shit. You can give that guy smoker's lines. Like he could be sweating, doing whatever the fuck. As long as she looks like lit with like the light from, you know, the gods, it don't matter. I mean, every time she's on screen, it looks like one of those Instagram filters where it puts like sparkles on you or like little star marks on you. I'm like, wow. And, you know, people kind of ride her for that a little bit. They're like, well, God, here goes Barbara Streisand again, looking hot, making herself look hot. I'm like, I would be doing the same ass shit. That's why I don't direct. And so would they. Everyone needs to admit it. Everyone else would be doing this. Yes, of course. Of course you would. And of course you'd be casting yourself being in the rocking chair (laughs) on top of Nick Nolte, who... Presume I don't know if Nick Nolte is like Bigfoot. I, I can't get a read on how big he is, but I was like, this still looks weird. I don't care if he's like seven four. Like he still should not be. Oh, God. She looks like a little adult baby in his arms. So it's so strange. It's very disconcerting. It's she looks tiny and like not human all the way. It's like a little alien egg kind of thing going on there. I don't know. And and let me just tell you, okay, so the the scene before the lake house because the lake house is literally my favorite slash it's like i love it and sort of hate it but i I think it's because i'm just like this is some this is some fucking cringe but i love it um the scene before the the whole reason why the the flirtation and the connection um hadn't taken off yet is because you know basically you had to give the movie time to let everyone see what a piece of shit lowenstein's husband is yep and it's that classic scenario where he's this European v- violin virtuoso and they have like a penthouse apartment in some real fancy part of town in New York and they're having a dinner party and everybody's wearing cocktail attire and he has to be like the guy that's just making fun of her, making fun of Tom because he shows up and it's that thing where like you really had to give it time to let you see what an evil European artist would do <laughs> to like bring these two together. And his wife, let's be fair, his wife, when he gets to New York, tells him she's having an affair. She's a doctor. She's having an affair with another person at the hospital another doctor and then she just drops on him hey this guy wants to marry me like what so you don't i don't know i don't think his his wife is played by blythe danner i don't think she's like a horrible person but it's definitely like an ill-timed sort of marriage where i feel like you know when you're in new york taking care of your sister who just tried to commit suicide this may not be the moment to drop all these bombs yeah. Yeah. And this whole the whole like the motivation for these two for Tom and Lowenstein to get together. It's a little TBD because, OK, first of all, in the Lowenstein case, you definitely are like, yeah, she should definitely cheat on that guy because he sucks. Yeah. He's like a evil European. Like he's like a diehard villain. Like he's like one of those types, <laughs> you know. But then with Blythe Danner, she's it's that thing where you're like. Oh, I know what she's trying to say. She's basically like, 
we haven't been together for a long time. Like we just are not connecting because you simply cannot be an adult about your emotions. So now I'm being driven to another relationship. Mm -hmm. And it's the kind of ultimatum that she's putting on him. Like, either let's work on your shit or like I'm out. Cause this other guy that I'm having an affair with wants to marry me. Right. So it's this little thing where he's kind of like, well, I don't know. I'm having a real good time here in New York because initially he hates it. Because he's Southern and he's like, yep. I hate New York. It's too loud. Shrimp costs too much. <laughs> if I know anything, I know how much shrimp should cost. And it is not this. Yeah. In this fancy New York, shrimp is like $2. It should be like 50 cents or I don't know. Like, who the fuck knows how? What's the shrimp cost of the day? I don't know. Well, he's also I mean, to be fair, he is falling in love with a woman who owns an excessive amount of candelabra. So I would think that New York was a little too fancy as well. <laughs> I mean, candelabras at the lake house. That dinner party was lit entirely by candelabras to the to the point where I thought I always think of candelabras as like something you inherit, not something you go out and buy. She had 80 of them easily. I always think about this. This happens in literally every movie where I'm like, who the fuck has time to light like 80 candles before having sex? Honestly, like, is this fucking Downton Abbey? You don't need to walk through the hallways with a candelabra. That's the reason why they had them shits is because there was no electricity. Okay. This is like 1991. We don't need all these candelabras. It's just decorative. And you don't got to light all of them. If you're doing sexy living in midair with candelabras, <laughs> my ass is going to think you're too fancy as well. From anywhere that I live. I could live down the street in New York. I could live in the village in New York and still think I felt like a yokel compared <laughs> to the amount of candelabras in this house. You either be in Dracula's castle or at Lowenstein's <laughs> lake house. <laughs> That's where you're going to see those candles lit. But the 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 thing that's so interesting to me is that like so they go from the party where the evil european husband is like fucking you know taking the piss out of everybody and then they immediately like go back to um i guess it's um savannah savannah's apartment so basically tom is staying in savannah's apartment by the way just as a side note george carlin oh thank you plays savannah's neighbor he i don't know he's he's a gay man i don't know if they're living in the village i don't know what neighborhood it's in maybe you would know it looks like downtown like it looks or at least like like downtown east villagey maybe george carlin is such a goddamn delight and actually his relationship with tom is very sweet to me i love it yes because tom is like you can just tell tom loves george carlin's character it's not this weird like oh you're a gay dude from new york i hate new york you know blah 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 it's like no he falls in they fall into the old friendship the minute he sees him it's so sweet they have their own language like it is it's really beautiful it's so fun and funny and when she leaves this party when they, she runs out after tom who's just like pace and and uh she goes with him and they go back to savannah's house and just like, you know, fuck all night. The next morning, George Carlin comes in because, of course, he has a key to the apartment. Of course, yeah. he comes in with like baked goods for the morning and 
Lowenstein and the George Carlin character, they know each other. They're actually friends. Like he's the one who recommended this therapist to Savannah. Um, So they hang out socially. And so when he comes in with this like bag of fucking baked goods, she tries to she's wrapped in a sheet and she tries to like run back to the bedroom. And he's like, oh, hi, Susan. Do you like your croissant buttered? And this is my favorite moment of this movie. (laughs) Because it's so pure. And I don't know that I would not be surprised if it was completely ad-libbed. She starts laughing and she just goes, ask him. And she runs back into the bedroom. And Ah. it's so cute. (laughs) Lowenstein has bars. Okay. When it comes down to it. Like, the very, it's so funny because it's like the fucking first half of this movie, man. She's like real buttoned up, cold psychiatrist type. And then the minute... They do a little butt grabbing. Did you notice that? Like in the hallway, oh, that's yeah. how they, they begin to um, sort of take it to the physical realm is that they're grabbing each other's buns. I mean, buns were hot in the late 80s, early 90s. Could not get enough buns. This is the one thing I gleaned from shit like this when I was a kid was that adult women love buns. They <laughs> love some buns. Buns of steel. They like firefighter buns. And they just want to grab onto the buns. They just want to hold on. I remember my aunt Evelyn um, obsessed with George Michael. And when (laughs) (laughs) obsessed and George Michael, rest in peace, gave us nothing but buns for four decades. Just buns all over the place in the 80s. She was obsessed with that man's ass. When you shake your ass, they notice fast. And he certainly he certainly shook it. He shook it. Yes. He shook it. But yeah, they they have a real torrid love affair that starts with grabbing the cakes. Grabbing the cakes. And then I also I I appreciate this too, where um you know that they've been intimate because they're both covered in sheets. <laughs> like when somebody puts a sheet over their chest and it's like, oh, that was great. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> that's i'm laughing because i thought like oh is that what sex is like you just lay around in the sheet when i was a kid because that's the only kind of sex scenes i saw were like no one's showing you the actual act thankfully when i was a kid you don't need to see that but every love scene was like just sheets and also just like wrapped around and just always tucked in the armpit yes like real tight and i'm like how big are these sheets where you can like fully mummify two adult people They've got like king size sheets on a twin size bed. Like they are just wrapped, tucked in, man. Always white sheets. Always. And that's when, you know, it's like, like you can tell that there's something going on when their sheets are just kind of moving up and down. It's like some funky's going on. Just these white sheets. And it's either like afterwards you're either spooning in the sheets with everyone's tight tuck under the armpit or smoking with the sheets up. Yep. You know, choose, (laughs) choose your own adventure when it comes to that. This episode should definitely be called Smoking in the Sheets. Smoking in the Sheets. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But this, but this Lake House scene again is literally my favorite thing because it's so corny. It's like, let's watch two middle-aged people falling in love outside. They're doing the fucking like, let's bring groceries to our lake house. and We'll just crack all the eggs on the, on the floor because we just can't stop making love. We can't stop. And, you know, they're like taking boats 
and going hiking. It's like a fucking L.L. Bean catalog up in that shit. She is like she's braless hiking, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. I'm and like, the other girl. the other component to this movie, too, is that Barbara Streisand's son, Bernard, who, by the way, is her real son. I don't know if you knew that. Mm-hmm. He is the son of Barbara and Elliot Gould, Ugh. whom we are horny for, certainly. <laughs> But he's in the movie playing her son, and he's this, you know, again, he's this guy who has to be a violent player because his shitty-ass dad is making him go to, like, violin camp or whatever the fuck he's going to. <laughs> also, I know he was a teenager in this movie, but it was a very nebulous age. Like, yes. He could have been 14 to 19. Like, I don't know. But he's still in school, so I'm guessing he's, you know, 15, 16? I don't know. Yeah, he had a mouth of like a 35-year-old. He was like cussing, you know. But it was that thing where it was like, he has to play violin to satisfy his dad. But guess what? He also wants to play football. And guess who knows a little something about football is Tom Wingo. And Barbara basically gets Tom to show him how to play football. So there's all these extended scenes of like the son playing football with Tom. Tom is smoking while playing football. 90s. The 90s. And then there's a scene later where Barbara and Tom are playing a little football, a little touch football, get it, sexual, um, at the lake house. And she, the close-ups of her butt in those tight (laughs) sweatpants, I'm like, girl, yes. (laughs) Like, this is fucking crazy, but do it. Show them your ass. It was, this is a pre-joggers time. I had never seen sweatpants that tight in my life. <laughs> and of course, like, they're those like, were tailored. They were like beige. So I was like, are we seeing some kind of separation here? I don't know what I'm seeing right now. It was it's again, like many disturbing scenes at the lake house that upon closer inspection make no sense. And that is one of them. Also, the whole scene, I was completely baffled that she would even attempt to catch a football with those nails. I know she's just, she palmed it. Basically. She was like, "Mm, mm, don't, these are six inch real ass nails. You will not see me catching this football. Hell no. The one thing I wished to God she would have done though, is smoked a cigarette. Cause I love a cigarette nail, like a nail coming off of a cigarette, like very glamorous for me. Surprised she didn't do it. I know. But, um, so anyway, what ends up happening is what exactly what you think happens, which is that Tom's wife comes a calling. Mm-hmm. Okay. They've gone through the lake house. They've they've bonded. They've been dancing at the rainbow room to like some fucking uh classic American songbook <laughs> jam. <laughs> and Savannah has gotten better. She's starting to you know, come out of her haze and Tom has worked on himself. And just when you think, oh, my God, these two people, they could work. Blythe Danner shows up back mm-hmm. in the picture. Gwyneth Paltrow's mom ruins the fun again. <laughs> ruins the fun again. And Tom basically says, you know what? Like, I got some kids. All my daughters are gorgeous. All of them are gorgeous. I guess that's what happens when Blythe Danner is your mom. <laughs> that little girl, that's my favorite part of the movie, too, is where it's a very small part where he's in New York 
and it's like his youngest daughter's birthday and he's calling her and he's basically like there you know it's basically like a is he gonna come home for her birthday and she gets on the phone she's like you missed my birthday i'm gonna kill you (laughs) (laughs) i mean she's like kids are adorable little sassy pants but essentially it happens where he realizes oh i can't this is this is I've been here for six weeks. I can no longer do this. I have an obligation to my girls, to my wife, to the Mm -hmm. state of South Carolina. (laughs) I must go home. And they have a very, very emotional reckoning. Ugh. Barbara's good at a a fond farewell. Ooh. Yes. She pounds him on the back with those nails. Like, what's her line? She goes, One of the things I love about you is that the kind of guy who always go back to his family. (laughs) (laughs) Very emotional scene. I teared up this time. I'm like, damn. Me too. They both found real love. The timing was off. It ain't gonna work. It's rough. He says to her, you know, I, it was basically she's like you love her more and he's like no I've just loved her longer which I was oh, like damn son damn. knife to the heart Conroy damn damn but it, I do think without this parting we would not have had what is to me the most incredible part of the film when he goes back to South Carolina he's got his mojo back she changed his life He's teaching. He's like fucking Robin Williams and Dead Poet Society. Like he's just doing his thing back with his family, back coaching. And he drives home over every day over a bridge. And when he gets to the top of the bridge, he doesn't know why, but he just likes to whisper, Lowenstein, Lowenstein. And I'm like, bitch, I'm, I'm done for the night. I can't. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. All I want, let's just be real. All I want from any future relationship I have is for someone who probably owns a jacket that smells like gasoline and just calls me by my last name. That's all I want. Just be my fucking pal. Be chummy. Oh my God. I mean, listen, when it comes down to it, I think I have fallen in love with Tom Winko as well. I mean, I think you have. I really do because there are moments where I'm just sort of like, especially when they show like a brief two second clip of him teaching when he was wearing those glasses. I was like, hello, (laughs) what's wrong with me? I mean, he shows you the full spectrum of of masculinity and and love. What do you want? Who's powerless against that? Who can resist? I mean, dare I say he's like the perfect man uh, i don't know i don't know if i can say that but it certainly feels that way it certainly feels like barbara has told us he is that whole movie was a love letter to the tom wingo i'm i gotta tell you and like you know i i feel like she did that shit right she was basically like i'm gonna star in this shit i'm gonna make myself look like i'm under the vaseline haze <laughs> of the camera I'm going to have my nails as beautiful as I can make them. And I'm going to make this character fall the fuck in love with me, singing my name over a bridge for the rest of his life. (laughs) That's a different, it's a lyric from killing him, killing me softly that we haven't heard. Singing my name over a bridge for the rest of his life. (laughs) One time 
<laughs> and I have to say, too, that what I appreciate about Nick Nolte in this role is I like that these that that he and Savannah were twins because it's a very like yin yang light dark thing going on where he's all humor, all deflection. And she is just dark. She is a dark soul. And the fact that they're twins and there's this one part where she starts to wake up and kind of come come to because she's been really heavily medicated in this hospital. Um, and he just grabs her and hugs her and is like, I don't know what I would do if I woke up in a world without you or like something to that effect. And I'm like, fuck. Plus, Savannah is played by the mom from A Christmas Story. Melinda the Range. Dillon. Hello. The Range. I could have withstood a movie about her alone. She's fascinating. Like she kind of splintered her personality. I don't think she was like a multiple personality or dissociative um, identity disorder, but she's a writer and she has this book of poetry that he's read. But then she also publishes this children's book under another name, Renata Halpern. Yeah. And it's all about their childhood. And she's like created this whole identity as an author so that she could write about their childhood. And he's furious when he finds out, but eventually comes to understand. And it's just a really sweet, like on top of the the middle-aged love story, I really appreciated the middle-aged sibling story. I did too. And also I thought it was very sweet that he called her darling and sweetheart. Aww. He's like, I can't imagine a world without you. Like I truly feel like crying when i hear that like i'm just like it's, god oh it's very sweet heartbreaking and it's it's a great film in that way like i think that's why it also felt like a very adult movie to me as a kid because i'm like there's stuff going on here that i don't understand but i know i should be crying and then once i hit 30 waterfalls boom we now feel this feel this shit to the t well and here's the thing there's like basically two movies for me that feel like the mo- like you really do capture South Carolina as a beautiful place and it's the big chill and Ugh. this movie. Those are the two movies where I'm like, oh, my God, can I please live in a giant, beautiful house on the salt marshes in the low country? That would be the greatest living ever. And there is a moment, too, where I was like, there was, I think there's a point where they somebody says, like, I cannot imagine you in New York like you mm-hmm. have to live in the South, like you're a Southern guy and you love the South in a way that like most people who live here don't love it. It's like this really deep poetic passion that he mm-hmm. has for where he's from. And so and I think that was really it was really clear in the movie that that's the way it was. I mean, it was clear that the movie was about the South and how beautiful it can be. And like I said, yeah, I mean, b- besides the big chill, this is the other house. I mean, like that beach house. Yeah. Damn. Oh. oh, his house. Put me in those houses, man. And I I loved they, they did a beautiful job in the beginning of the film kind of showing that beauty as well. Like there's a scene with the kids all jumping in the water and holding hands underwater. And he's narrating throughout. Um, but, you know, he's talking about in the beginning kind of the, the turbulence in their home um, because his dad was such a son of a bitch. Um, But then they show these beautiful scenes. And I think it was there was I think it was pretty early on in the narration while he's describing kind of their childhood and their life where he says that their his parents fought all the time. But the only prisoners they took were their children. And that against the backdrop of like a pink sunset. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. It's a beautiful movie in so many ways, but they really use the scenery to emphasize the emotion. And I just. 
greatly fell in love with with that. Yeah, man. I'm glad that you understand it because honestly, like like I said, I think now at this point, I I do think that a part of me is sort of like defiantly loving this film in spite of like all these other people. Cause basically I'm like, yeah, this is like, it, it, I know that this is something that's like kind of unexpected for me, like as something I would really, really like. Um, but I love that it is so, you know, it's epic. It's this epic, emotional, dramatic, high key story made by this woman filmmaker who is this epic high key personality it's like everything is locking into place for this being kind of like it's like a, an over-the-top masterpiece but i also think it's just a masterpiece i also think i really yeah. like it as the film itself but i i do protect it to the hilt i will protect it forever against any like asshole that thinks it's corny or whatever i will always come for you trust me as you should this is the first <laughs> movie i think that i saw I know that I saw this is the first movie I saw as a kid where a man cried and had like that depth of emotion and really to see someone walk through their own life. Like there's something very poetic and, you know, the the storyteller in the family is Savannah, but he ends up being the person who can who is her memory, they say in the film. And he unlocks his own sort of poetry about his life and it's just it's beautiful it's a beautiful movie i'll be right there with you defending it nunchucks and all like i'll be there (laughs) get away from me i love the prince of tides and i don't care who knows it i don't care if there was a prince of tides convention i will be there every night full full (laughs) price caught my prince of tides cosplay whatever i gotta do what would you wear in your prince of tides cosplay oh god this is (laughs) what character I mean, God, every character has its own sadness. I guess I would be the sun. <laughs> I would wear my my uh, my football outfit and carry my my uh, what is, Stradivarius? Is that the name of it? <laughs> yeah. I'd be a football violinist. <laughs> That's who I'd be. Excellent. I would be Barbara Streisand's nails. I would just go as a full manicured Streisand nail. Listen, you could come as Barbara Streisand in the rocking chair. Just create like, you know how like they have those like old costumes of like the dummies. Like, you know, how it looks like there's two people in one costume. You could do that. I'm doing it. You know how to sew. You know how to sew. I was just going to say, so I'll sew a rocking chair and then I'll just curl up in it. And put like some kind of stabilizer so it, I could just kind of hover. Well, I'm glad you wanted to talk about this for real. Thank you. I needed to talk about it. Clearly, I'm so glad that you held space for me to talk about it. <laughs> I'm glad that we have come to the same conclusions about it. And God damn it, Barbara, I swear you got me, man. Like every fucking time you got me. I mean, I was out here talking about the way we were and Danielle was like, motherfucker i i stand i stand but that wasn't because of her that was because of hubble that's true she was dope in that movie yeah. she was perfection yes and hubble was a fuck boy and she deserved better well i know the the next time we do this is gonna be your turn so it is buckle the fuck up people because 
I got a banger. We got some bangers <laughs> coming up. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I guess if you uh, want to dig our merch, you can at the Exactly Right shop at exactlyrightmedia.com. And if you're listening to this, then you're already subscribed to Stitcher Premium <laughs> or you're listening to a free month. So if it's free, great. And if it's ending, subscribe. That's right. And if you want to get in touch with us about the Prince of Tides, you can do that at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Um, I guess that's it. Maybe. Awesome. I mean, I know we're going to keep this conversation going for the rest of our lives, but we'll end the Prince of Tides conversation for the pod. You know, if you don't show up to my birthday, I won't kill you. I'll kill you. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Thank you. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our social media manager is Taryn Mazza. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. Email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 